I'm Maureen Milliken. And I'm Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. Right, and today, we're, I don't know why we always have to say where we are, but we're at my house. If you hear something in the background, I'll try to get rid of the noise. It's, it's a space heater. It's a space heater because I've been living with hardly any oil in the oil tank of my heating system, not my car. Well, my car, too, probably. For weeks, trying to tough it out till Wednesday. When yes. I yes, because in, in the Northeast, unlike the rest of the country, we rely on oil heat more yep. than anyone else. No so there are gas. people switching to natural gas. Well, but it's natural gas doesn't come from yes, my town. And, it does, the pipeline. And, and that's true. It, it, and I don't nice. have the money to do something yeah, it's sustainable. So, and it's very expensive. So mm-hmm. I pay as I go. I got 100 gallons on December 14th, and today it's January 27th. So you've gone still, quite a while. Yeah. That's good. Before we start. Oh, you have a story to tell. Today. I have a story today. Yeah. So last night, we had a dinner for my mom. Last week was her 83rd birthday. And my twin brother, Billy, who doesn't listen to us, I'm pretty sure. Hi, Billy. No, he here. doesn't. He's too important. To he um, took us out to eat. Well, when, say who us was, because I didn't I was go. just about to okay. say who us All was. Right. That you interrupted me. Sorry. So it was our folks, mom and dad, me, Billy, and his ex-girlfriend, who's still a close friend, Deirdre. His ex-current girlfriend. Uh, she's not really his girlfriend, but they're probably... They're close. They're, they're close. closer than a couple. Yeah, they are. Interesting. And my significant other, Eric, or my partner. Your baby daddy. Yeah, and my daughter, Hannah. So the restaurant we went to is called Lena's. It's in Portland, Maine where my folks live. During the day, it is Portland Pottery, which has a studio, and this is kind of next to that. They have a shop where they sell pottery supplies and pottery, and they also have a cafe, I guess, during the day, which I've never been to, but Billy goes there a lot. He says they have good soup. At night, it transforms into this Italian restaurant called Lina's. It's small. There's probably only about 10 tables, maybe, at the most. And when we went last night, Billy met us. He told us to meet him there at 6.15, so I assumed he made reservations. (laughs) He hadn't made reservations, but they had room for us. It was just that they weren't prepared. For such a large party. There were two large parties already there that were six or more people. Mm -hmm. And Billy said those groups had shown up about the same time as him, so we all showed up at the same time. So they were kind of flustered, the people that work there. But anyways, she seated us all. The woman that runs it, I don't know her name, she's very nice. And then two other couples came in. And it reminded me kind of of a a, uh, cozy mystery book because we're in this little small restaurant. Like a Barbara Ross cozy mystery? Well, one of her books starts that way, so that's what it reminded me of. So we're all sitting there eating. Finally, our food came. It took a long time for our food to come, like 45 minutes to an hour. Uh, I'm glad I didn't go. I'm so hungry. So I, of course, ate everything, and everyone else was like, ew, I can't finish. Uh, I'm going to bring this home. And I was like, So in the middle of our food, actually, no, it was before the food came. Sorry. Because I remember saying, I hope this doesn't delay the food anymore. And Billy's like, me too. So we're all sitting there eating. This young woman runs in. Well, first of all, I heard this. So you weren't sitting there eating if your food hadn't come. No, I'm sorry. No. Did you have bread? No. Wow. And on Yelp, it said they served bread. Wow. So I didn't even get any bread. I had water. Yeah, oh, we, God, but I other people so were eating. Angry. I meant we were sitting there eating because I was talking about collectively the whole restaurant. The, oh, so it was a all of us were to, <laughs> were bonded. And, well, first, like I said, I heard this like weird noise, and I thought someone had a baby screaming right outside the door. 
the restaurants on Washington Avenue, which is fairly, it's not a super busy street in that area, but it goes right to the, you get on 95 at one end of it, so there's a lot of traffic. And now it's all hipster. That's an up-and-coming yes, place. It's got that a, container box building. Yes, it has that, and it has a couple of breweries and, and shit uh, like that. And also that. a distillery. And any uh, ethnic-type restaurants, a lot of them are on that street. So we're sitting there. This woman runs in. Someone's mugging my boyfriend. Someone's, uh, help, help. And she's screaming and crying. And so, of course, the men. The men. <laughs> there were the two couples. Their men ran outside. They the were Billy or Dad or Eric? No, <laughs> Eric did. Billy and Dad did not. <laughs> <laughs> they just looked Dad was like what's going on somebody else will take care of it. so there were other men in there that did not run out and there were some women that ran out I have to say so she's like he punched my boyfriend in the face blah 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 so they run out did anyone call the cops yes I'm, I'm sorry I'm sorry that. okay I'll let you eat your through. cookie so she's like this guy attacked my boyfriend and then she's like, it's him. It's that guy in the blue jacket. And then I look out and it's very light. There's a lot of bright lights on the outside of the building. So this guy in the blue jacket's like walking by the window because it's like all windows in the front. <laughs> and he's just walking by this skinny, meth heady looking guy. <laughs> so two of the men got up and chased him. What, did he start running? Yes, apparently started running because he wasn't running when he was walking by. Because I think he saw the whole restaurant looking at him. I didn't think he knew where the girl had gone, the woman, oh, I should I... say. But we all, like, turned and looked right when he was walking by, and he, he was looking in the in the window. So, like I said, several men and women ran after him, and he ran down the area of Portland. has a lot of little streets down towards, you know, down Fox Street. He ran down Fox mm-hmm. Street, which is going towards another brewery and hipster bars and shit that used to all be... Uh, they're all, all taken over. They used to be industrial. I used to work on that. So, anyways, he, he got away. So, in the meantime, Deirdre had loaned her phone to the woman who called the police, and people were talking to them, and the woman said they were from Boston, but they come to Portland all the time, and blah, 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 blah. Did the woman didn't have a cell phone? I don't know what was going on. I okay. honestly don't. I'm sorry. I don't know I don't why Deirdre to... gave her a cell phone. Okay. I was just waiting for my fucking food. I know. <laughs> and that's when I said to Billy, I hope this doesn't delay our food anymore, and yeah. Billy's like, me too. Yeah. <laughs> And anyway. so the guy, everyone's outside and all worked up and blah, blah, blah. The cops were called. They came. They were looking for the guy. And then we kept seeing the guy. Walk, we're like, there's that guy again. He's walking by. How but, was the boyfriend injured? Did he have He had, no, he had a bloody nose. Apparently the guy cold. I don't think he did mug. Him. I think he just punched him in the face. Well, he that's out, mugging, right? Yeah, but mugging is to get money oh, from yeah, someone. Yeah. And I don't think he was trying to get their money. I think he just punched him. Maybe he hated hipster visitors from out of state. Well, you know, the cops came, talked to people, um, then they left. So I'm like, why does that guy keep walking by? This was like a half an hour or so later. Eric went outside and talked to the couple or talked to some people. Apparently the husband, or the, that was her husband, not her boyfriend. I don't know. Husband, boyfriend, Whoever. He decided not to press charges, so the cops are like, well, there's nothing to arrest him for. He didn't do anything wrong if the guy's not going to press charges. He punched him in the face. I have never understood that. I don't know. So anyways, Billy's like, well, I'm so glad half the restaurant ran outside. By the way, Billy is a lawyer and a former criminal defense lawyer. Yes, he is. He said that guy reminded him of people he um, defended. He said, I'm so glad half the restaurant ran out to help defend the guy and catch the guy, and then the 
the person that they're helping decides not to press charges. He's like, maybe they, we should have, and I felt like saying it wasn't we, it was them, because he's like, maybe we should have decided not to help him. I'm like, well, someone asked Eric, because he, Eric kept going outside because he's nosy, I guess. Oh, good for him. I think Eric would probably say he isn't nosy, but good for him for being nosy. So he was out there, and he's the one that said, Deirdre's like, why isn't that, why is that guy still walking by? (laughs) Like, he keeps walking by. Eric's like, the police said no crime was committed. Because Deirdre's like, well, did the police miss him? I mean, he's right there. And, And Eric said they said they couldn't arrest him because the guy didn't want to press charges. And it was just him punching the guy in the face. So I guess, you know, if the guy's like, oh, no, never mind. (laughs) <laughs> I swear the guy was taunting us because he kept walking by. Hey, probably. And Billy's like, well, meanwhile, he's lurking for somebody else to attack. And I'm like, I'm, exactly. I know. So then this morning on my way here, there's two ways to get to the highway from my house. Both ways I have to go through Port. Well, not, no, there are several there's ways. There's no good the way to get from way. South Portland to 295. Yeah, that's, yes, exactly. I like going across the bridge and then going up um, High Street. Thank you for telling. I'm just saying. That's the way I usually go. Unless the bridge is up because it's a drawbridge, and then I go through, go, go down right the other part of South Portland. But anyways, today I said, you know what, I'm not going to drive over High Street. I think I'll drive through the old port because it's Sunday morning, and it's probably going to be not that busy in the old port, which is stupid because it was. There yeah. were a bunch of tourists. I'm driving down 4th Street, I think, yeah, 4th Street, and I come to... On the left is Tommy's Park, where they used to have a nice mural, and now it's just a blank wall. They're putting a new mural. Mm-hmm. And I see this car attempting to parallel park, and someone's directing. There's a guy directing the car, and I was, no. because I, I was stopped at the stop sign, because there were several cars in front of me. I was thinking to myself that one of my pet peeves is when I'm trying to do something in a car and people try to direct me. Yes. I fucking hate I know, that. I know. Unless I know. I've asked them. Right. I'm and, there I, with you. and then I noticed. It was the young woman driving, and the guy directing her was her boyfriend mm-hmm. from last night. Ah, husband. It was, yeah, husband, boyfriend. It looked like a Did they have Massachusetts license plates? I didn't look at their plates because I was too busy recognizing them. I always them. look Because I didn't recognize the guy at first. He's a tall, skinny guy. <clears throat> I recognized the girl. I don't know why. The what? woman. So I'm like, ah, oh, it's that couple. And I finally said to him, you know what? Fuck you. But I didn't. Yeah. But I one, one thing that bugs me, just, you can say, okay, the guy had some compassion for this guy to not press charges. My guess is, though, they just didn't want their weekend messed up I don't, I think by dealing with the cops. And, and they but, didn't want to have to come back here. But the issue is, here. like we may even see in my story a little today, if people don't take shit seriously, and I think we say that all the time, too. Like, can you see this with rape reports and stuff, too? Yes. I don't know what the context of the guy hitting the the visitor to Portland was, but if a guy is just going around randomly punching people in the face, somebody should do something about yes. it. And A, I don't understand not pressing charges because you don't want to mess up your nice weekend in Portland. But the other thing is, I know the cops are like, oh, it's your word against theirs, so blah, blah, blah. But I don't understand why with assaults, cops leave it up to, in fact, I thought they didn't, because people can be intimidated into not pressing charges. Maybe the cops just didn't want to deal either. Probably. Maybe it was time for the shift change. The new donuts were but out. But I think my feeling is not that the guy had compassion. 
but that he didn't want to mess up his weekend, and he also was not from around here and didn't want to have to deal with the long-distance thing of, right, can you come back. up and, yeah, and he just right. didn't want to do it. And I, so I, meanwhile, there's a guy walking around Portland who's going to punch people in the face. I guess so. He was a skinny, like, well, I don't, well, maybe and we'll, maybe he was trying to mug them, or through more questioning of the woman who was in the restaurant with us, and they're both in the restaurant, and the woman that ran the restaurant was like, oh, come in, you know, don't worry about it, just come in and blah, blah, blah. And, of course, it was a small group of people. Right. So everyone was talking to them, and it's Portland. Everyone's That does sound like the opening to a book. It does. And maybe we'll be reading about the blue-jacketed meth head in the Portland Press Herald in the future when he does something more violent. Well, there's lots of people like that. Well, people it, you are know, always getting punched it's, in it's Portland funny. on Saturday night. It's funny, though. When you arrived here, what did you say about people in Augusta? Because you had stopped at this Damon's <laughs> Quick Stop. Don't yeah. tell the people what I said about people. In like anybody in Augusta listens to our podcast. Hey, I bet some of we them. We grew up in Augusta. And if you want to read about Augusta, I wrote a column. I should put that up on our... Remember for the KJ <laughs> yeah. when I wrote that column about when I delivered papers in Augusta? Because yeah. people were complaining about how there's more crime oh, now than there was, was in the worse. 70s. Right, and on that note, should okay. I get into my topic? Yeah. We probably have updates. We can do them next time. Yes. Well, I have one update. Oh, do you want to do it? Um, yes, but I forgot to bring the newspaper. Well, why don't you just briefly say what it is? It was about Noah Gaston. Oh, yeah. The I one saw. that shot his wife on the step. That was, I think it was episode four. It was main women and the men who... Who killed them. them. It was around and then. He... Said he thought his wife was an intruder and shot her on the steps. <laughs> Apparently, there's a couple things they want to suppress in the trial. One was the one of their little daughters. They had an eight, I think, an eight-year-old daughter and a nine-year-old daughter. And the eight-year-old daughter said, I, I always remember this. She said that they were that she heard mommy and daddy talking in their quote scared voices. Uh, they were fighting before this happened. His claim is that thought his wife was still asleep in bed and and thought she was an intruder and shot her. But the daughter. They, they, Little he, pictures. He doesn't figures. want that the daughter to testify, um, even though it's been written in the paper. So, honey, we all know she heard you fighting. And, and um, also, with kids, they can do it like off-site videotape. I think his point is she's not a reliable witness because yeah. she's eight, which is bullshit. Mm-hmm. The other thing he apparently told stuff to two people, to church members. Uh, about his feelings of frustration before he killed his wife, about you know not being able to do his music or whatever. They're trying to say that's confidential, like a priest confession, which it really isn't because they're just church members. <laughs> but and then the other thing was maybe he goes to the kind of church where everyone's a priest. Yeah, whatever. And the other thing was he had written some song with lyrics talking about how frustrated or <laughs> something about life or evil. I can't remember some stupid song. He wants them not to use the song. I hate my wife. I hate my wife. I wish I could kill my wife. And I kind of agree with the last one because just like with the um, Linda Doloff, with they used her journals, a lot of times you write things or you're expressing things that you're not necessarily going to follow up on. Especially in a song which can be considered fiction. It's like a It can be a point of view. It can be like a poem. I mean, if you write a poem, if I write a poem from the, you know, point of view that I'm my cat. Oh, that, that would be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't mean that that's how I feel. Right. Like, I wish she would feed me. Right. Speaking of guys who kill the women who Ooh. love them, as well as women they don't even know, should I just get into Yes. 
So I'm excited. I, I am too, actually, because this is one I think people will like. It's one that there's not, I mean, I mean, there's been information out there, but not a lot about, but you would think there will be because of all the stuff. So <laughs> information for the story is from the Morning Sentinel in Waterville, the newspaper. Much of it, much, much of the first half, the Janet Baxter stuff is from actual 1976 stories. I spent many hours of joy and bliss in the Maine State Library. And I'd like to recommend, too, that if you're interested in something and you have a resource like the Maine State Library that has back newspapers on microfilm, it's a really great way to spend an afternoon is to go through old newspapers. And there's a lot of stuff. There was so much stuff. Like, in 1976, I remember, because I... When this happened, I was 15. Like, the things I was obsessed with, like, there was this tanker, the Argo Merchant, that had grounded off, like, Nantucket or somewhere, and was grounded and ended up splitting in half. And, like, they had stories every day, and I remember, like, being obsessed with it. I know. It's funny the things that come back to you, because the last few I've done, Albert Flick one, I had to look up a lot of stuff from when his wife died, and I think that was 76 or or, or 74. I don't know, but... It, it's funny to think. Yeah, it was seventy four because press on well, you. Ford. Yeah, President Ford was the president. Yeah, and it's funny the things that you remember, and you're like, oh yeah. So a lot of the information is from that, and I also want to say that there's nothing like going back to the original news stories, yes. because through the filter of years and you know like the game of telephone and everything. A lot can be lost, and I learned a lot. That a lot hadn't been said about this one victim. And recent stories about this. And so this was very interesting. I also used Morning Sentinel accounts for 1998 and 2017. And 1964 articles from the Chicago Tribune, which I found on newspapers.com. Yes. And also from Albert Cochran's court filings, which are also always rich with detail, if you can find good ones. Yes. To begin, when Janet Baxter left her home in Oakland, Maine, a little after 9.45 p.m., On Tuesday, November 23rd, 1976, she wasn't going to be gone long. She had a cold, a sore throat, and laryngitis and was going to the A&P in Waterville, about a 10-minute drive away, to get some cough syrup. And in this, I'm going to talk about a bunch of little towns. They're all towns near Waterville, which is a city of about 16,000. Back then, it actually had about 17,000 people. In central Maine, this time of night, on a Tuesday night after 9 o'clock, the only thing that would be open would be the A&P in Waterville, yeah. your local store, the Oakland Superette, which is now Buddy's, probably closed at 9. Back I'm surprised then. the A&P was open that way yeah. back then, but whatever. But it was. It was probably the only place to go, yeah. which probably sealed her fate. But Poor in any case, Janet. a 30-year-old licensed practical nurse who worked in Waterville, she'd missed work that day because of the cold. The cold she had, not the cold weather. It was a cold night out, though. She took her boyfriend, Vaughn Stevens' car, since it was parked behind hers in the driveway of the mobile home where she lived on Oak Street in Oakland. Vaughn, visiting from Augusta, which is about a 20-minute drive away, stayed behind with Baxter's seven-year-old daughter, Julie, while Janet went out on the errand. At most, the round trip would have taken about half an hour. Janet, her maiden name was McCleary, was recently divorced. She was originally from Sanford, in southern Maine, and had grown up in Reedfield, which is a little south of where she lived now, on the other side of Augusta, kind of. And she was a 1964 graduate of Coney High School in Augusta, our alma mater. 
Also, I'd like to say, I, her, I hope her boyfriend felt guilty because he should have fucking gone. Sure. He should have, but maybe there's some reason yeah, she went instead of him. Maybe she's wrong. like, you're going to get me the wrong thing because you're I mean. a moron. Yeah. Although, since it was a new relationship, she probably wouldn't have said that. Yeah. But it's like, I, you're not going to get me the right. He was probably like, so what kind did you want? And she's, you know what? I'm just going to go myself. Yeah, but in any case, when Janet didn't return home by midnight... Vaughn called the Oakland Police Department and reported her missing. Meanwhile, in Norridgewalk, a town about 10 miles west, Police Chief Leroy Jones was on patrol at about 11.15 p.m. when he was stopped on Main Street by a motorist who reported an accident across the river on River Road. A car had gone off the road. Jones got to the car a couple minutes later. The 1974 Ford was caught in an old foundation between the road and the river with its front end pointed toward the river. Its lights were on and it was still running. And the way the road is there, there's the river is very wide. The Kennebec's one of Maine's bigger rivers. And there's the road. Parts of it have a guardrail right now. Parts don't. Who knows in 1976? But then there's some trees and a sharp drop-off down to the river. There was no sign of anyone around on the two-lane road. It's still largely rural in 2019. It's a bunch of farms between Norgewalk and Skowhegan. It, probably about 10 miles between the two towns, um, some homes, but not much else, a church or two. And this was across the street from, there was a cemetery on the other side of the street. Jones called for a tow truck to pull it back up on the road, then tried to figure out who the car belonged to, according to the news stories. I assume it means he took his radio and called <laughs> yeah. it in. He was joined by Somerset County Sheriff's Deputy William Flanagan, who was an Anson, a little to the north. The two hung out at the scene for about an hour. It's not clear what all they did, but they were apparently waiting for the owner to show up or something to happen. In 1998, Jones told Sentinel reporter Don Waterhouse, it got to the point where we said, gee whiz, there's only one thing to do. Let's check the trunk. <laughs> gee whiz. So at about 12.30 a.m., one of them opened the trunk. The initial oh. morning... The initial Morning Sentinel article that appeared on November 25th said it was Jones. Later articles said it was Flanagan, but in any case, someone opened it. Inside, they found Janet Baxter, dead. She was face down, according to the first story, face up, according to later stories. The only clothing she had on was a jacket that partially covered her upper body and socks, or, according to later court filings, all she had on was the socks and a shirt bunched around her neck. If it sounds like I'm being overly detailed, I think part of the point is just, you can never really trust initial... I know. I found as a reporter and also as an editor, too, like, cops initially would tell you something that was their impression or whatever, and later you'd find out that they were wrong. Yeah. You know, not big, horrible things, but little detail things, because as a reporter, you're focused on these little details, the cop who's not investigating, who's not the crime scene investigator, the details don't matter to them, yes. and they don't get the distinction. So that could be part of it. In any case, she'd been shot twice, once in the head and once in the chest, um, and that's never changed, that detail hasn't. In 1998, Jones said, I thought, oh my goodness, it was like reading those detective magazines. It was something you don't want to see. Yeah. At the time, you do what you have to do as a police officer, you close the lid down and you secure the scene, but then when you get alone later, the movie projector moves and you start seeing things again. Yeah, it was always on my mind. In Norwich Walk, which no longer has a police department, is a town of about, back then it was about 2,500 people. 
Now it's a little bigger. It has a shoe factory, a shoe shop, as we call them in Maine. Not a big crime, although a deputy was shot by a meth head Recently. in April, shot dead. But it, it's a typical town like mine in Maine where just not a lot of crime happens, and a lot of the cops in the area don't often see dead bodies. No. There was no sign of the rest of Janet's clothes, no sign of the gun. Police in the following days interviewed more than 40 people, the Morning Sentinel reported a few days later. It was later reported that both Vaughn Stevens and Janet's ex-husband, Charles Baxter, who'd been living in Waterville with his sister since the recent divorce, also took polygraphs at some point in the weeks after the killing. Police immediately searched the riverbank. I went to take a look yesterday, and though I'm not sure of the precise spot the car was found, it's been written it was across from the cemetery, and that cemetery stretches, I'm guessing, about two or 300 yards along the other side of the road. The river is pretty close to the road, and there isn't a lot of ground there. There are parts wide enough for a small house. Early stories say the car caught on the foundation of a ruined house. And I'm also guessing the road's been widened. Oh, yeah. But And with the snow, it was hard to tell, but there's some parts where there aren't guardrails and some parts where there are, and who knows what was there in 1976. There's small shrubs and trees. But it does drop quite steeply down to the river, which is pretty wide in that part. Yeah, you know, lots changed in 40 years, but there are things about Maine that haven't The banks changed. of the Kennebec are, are very steep. I think it's a glacial river. I'm not sure. Yeah, it goes from Moosehead Lake. It doesn't have, like, gentle banks that I've seen any. Unless no, maybe even here in Augusta, night, like, not here in Augusta, but in Augusta, which is just south of where I live, the whole city basically... Is, is on in the giant yeah. valley that slopes down to the river. Police from the beginning looked at it as a homicide. You know, duh, right? <laughs> she was shot in the head and the chest. Norwich Police Chief Jones told the Sentinel the car's position with the hood pointing toward the river made it clear that the intention of the killer was for the car to go in the water, which the story said is reportedly quite deep at that point. Jones told the Sentinel reporter, whose name was Thomas Lazat, and he was their Norwich correspondent, that the driver's side window was open so that the killer could have engaged the gear shift from outside the car and pushed it in. Jones said if the car hadn't gotten caught on the foundation, they likely wouldn't have found it for some time because the river would freeze over soon. It was definitely frozen when they I was probably there. Would, They may never have found it. I wonder, yeah. actually, if it had gone in, if anyone would ever have found the car. It kind of makes you wonder what else is down there. Police early on seemed optimistic about solving the murder, though the first story, which was November 25th, which was Thanksgiving Day, they said they had no suspects. By Saturday, State Police Lieutenant Lyndon Abbott told the Sentinel that 10 state police investigators were involved in the investigation, as well as police from Oakland, Norwich, Waterville, Skowhegan, and the Somerset County Sheriff's Department. It's so like every cop in central Maine, basically. You'll hear, like I said, a lot of towns in this story, but it's basically one small region. But one of the things about the area is, because of the geography, the lakes, there's tons of lakes and rivers and stuff, there are only a few main roads to go on. And I think that plays a part in this later. And these were all small towns at the time. Like I said, Norwich Walk had about 2,500 people. According to the 1980 census, Oakland had 5,000, Fairfield had 6,000, Skowhegan 7,000, Waterville about 17,000. In Maine, actually, those aren't that small. The car at that point was being gone over in the state crime lab in Augusta, but Abbott told the Sentinel progress was, quote, a slow and tedious task. He said there were almost 300 items in the car, and each one had to be processed. Mm. Any one of them could be important evidence, he said. 
And it sounds like my car. I just think of my car, yeah. Hey, Sarge, look at these 15A McMuffin wrappers. <laughs> I think we're out of something. <laughs> the car, by the way, was a company car that Vaughn Stevens used. He worked for some Portland company. It never said what, and it was his work car. It, which is weird, because I don't know how they tracked on the owner as fast as they did. It's never clear if they were able to tie the car to Baxter. You know, like in later stories from the 90s, it's like, they determined it was Baxter's car, but it wasn't. It was Von Stevens' car. But I wonder if, because Oakland and Norridgewalk are next to each other, and the sheriff, even though Oakland's in a different county, was involved, that somebody made the connection between the missing woman and the dead woman in the car. Police also said Janet had been last seen at the A&P around 10, though it wasn't initially reported that I can find who saw her or any other details. A summary of the case a month later says she was seen leaving, and the court documents later said she was seen leaving the store, but I'm not sure where that came from or who saw her. Richard Cohen, the deputy attorney general in charge of the criminal division for the state, said it would take half an hour to get from the A&P to where she was found. So since someone saw her car at 11.15, and she was last seen at the A&P at 10, that's 45 minutes unaccounted for. But I drove the route yesterday. When I read that, I didn't think he was right. And it's actually about 20 minutes. What's where the AMP was? It's, yeah. I'm getting to that. Oh, sorry. Well, the speed limit may have changed a little. My guess is the time to get from the JFK Plaza, where the AMP is, there's a Hannaford there now, and some other stores. I yes. think that it's been enlarged. I'm guessing the amount of time it took to get there hasn't changed that much, because the quickest way to get to Norwich Walk is to get on I-95, to go down Kennedy Memorial Drive, where the A&P is, about a mile to the entrance to I-95, and then get off the next exit two miles up, and you're on 139, which goes Norridgewalk. And when I timed it, I was coming from Norridgewalk to Waterville, and instead of getting on the highway, because I hadn't checked yet to see if that exit existed in 1976, but it did, I went through Waterville, and it's a circuitous route, and it took me 22 minutes. And I'm getting, this was a Tuesday night, at 10 in November. Oh, wow. You're so, you're so accurate. No, oh. I didn't. When oh, she, I thought when you did With me, it was a Saturday at 5. Oh. So there was traffic. With her, it was a Tuesday night at 10 o'clock in November. So it probably took 20 minutes. And while that may seem overly detailed, I think it, it plays a part in yeah. what happened. Once the driver got to Norwich Walk, he'd be on Main Street. That's 139. And he'd take a right. Because if you kept going straight, you're on U.S. Route 2 and you're going west all the way you know, yeah. New Hampshire, if you want to. If you take a right, you go over the bridge, over the river. If you take the immediate right off the bridge, that's River Road. And my guess is go over the river, pull over, because mm-hmm. the river's so close, and that's where you Shove dump it. it. Cohen, the AG, said a motive was, quote, still up in the air, and anything about rape would be premature at this time. Janet's body was being examined by the medical examiner. Um, the focus on motive in this case, which you'll see come up over and over again, kind of bugs me because you don't really know a motive, you know, most cases until you know who did it. Yeah. And saying the motive is rape is simplistic. And you'll see more about that later, too. Oh, so much. Cohen also said, quote, there's been a lot of interviewing going on and a great deal of background data has been gathered. He said the investigation was very intensive. A week later... Police said they were looking for a man who drives a yellow Volkswagen Beetle, who someone said had been seen stopped on the cemetery side of River Road, right across from where Janet's car was found. 
Between 10 and 11 the night, she was killed. Lieutenant Abbott of the state police said that officials had no reason to suspect the Volkswagen operator was involved, either directly or indirectly, in the murder, but may have seen something that could help lead them to the killer. So they wanted the guy, or anyone who had knowledge of a yellow VW being in the area that night, to call them. They also did a vehicle survey the Tuesday night a week after the crash, stopping cars between 9 p.m. and midnight to ask if they go by there regularly at that time, which kind of tells me they had real, really nothing at that point. Oh, yeah. well. Meanwhile, the Wednesday a week after the crash, the Sheriff's Department used its boat to search with a magnet for a metallic object in the river. Well, police wouldn't say what that would be. I'm guessing maybe a gun. Mm. By this time, it was being reported that a small caliber gun had been used to kill Janet. Police planned to widen the search when weather allowed, but an article 10 days after the first story, weather described as bitterly cold, put off a planned scuba dive, but Lieutenant Richard Boley of the state police said they were just covering the bases. They had no indication that the gun was in the river anyway. Although if it were me, if I were the killer, I would have thrown that gun way out in the friggin' river and nobody ever would. The reporter once again asked about a motive, and this is from the article. The fact that Mrs. Baxter's, and by the way, I noticed in these 1976 articles, every woman is Mrs. Mrs. or Miss, Miss, and where men aren't Mr. The fact that Mrs. Baxter's remains were found Mm -hmm. nearly naked in the trunk of a 1974 Ford early morning, November 24th, clad only in socks and with a jacket draped over the upper portion of the body, has prompted speculation that the victim was raped. But Lieutenant Bowley noted that the results of tests to determine rape are still not available. Bowley said because of the cold making the water search not possible, they were turning to other leads in the case. He also said no arrests have been made. Duh! (laughs) A December 8th story, so this would be more than two weeks after the murder, was headlined, No Developments Reported in Probe of Baxter Homicide. Cohen, the deputy AG, told the Sentinel that while the investigation was following a definite course, there are no new developments to report, and it basically stood where it had the week before. Apparently, the reporter again pressed for a motive, and Cohen said, quote, We have some thoughts on it, but there is nothing definite. The story says, quote, The fact that Mrs. Baxter's remains were found only partially clothed has prompted speculation rape was involved. But Cohen said medical tests performed during the op- autopsy on Mrs. Baxter's corpse would likely not be of aid, proving forcible rape. The story concludes, Cohen also stated that investigators cannot say at this time that any one person is the prime suspect in the case, and noted that police haven't narrowed down any list of potential suspects from the more than 40 people interviewed in connection with this homicide. On December 18th, there was a story with the headline, Still No Leads on Suspects and Baxter Slain. The story's lead said that the investigation is being pressed, but, quote, state police still had uncovered no motive and no real suspects in connection with the case. Cohen tells the reporter that the medical examiner, Dr. Henry Ryan's examination, shows no outward sign of forcible rape. Now, this is a direct quote from the story. It gets kind of annoying. Cohen said that tests on the body found face up and only partially clothed would likely show only that the victim had had intercourse within a certain period prior to her death. The story, fairly jangling with disappointment, goes on. Friday's disclosure that forcible rape was not indicated in connection with the November 3rd Baxter homicide leaves police investigators with one less possible motive for the death. Just because they can't prove there was a rape doesn't mean rape wasn't involved. No shit. They just can't prove it. Right. It's obvious she's found almost naked. Which they have to keep saying. 
So, dead, almost naked, and... I mean, yes, you can't prove it, but you can... You can... Surmise it. Yeah. And... And I'm not saying you, you, that, that that would be... You'd have enough proof to charge the person with rape. Right. But at the same time, don't just say, oh, well, since we can't prove it, since, it didn't right. happen. Since, since there wasn't indications of violence, she wasn't raped. I don't know that Cohen was necessarily saying that anyway, yeah, but, but the, reporter the reporter jumped to that yeah, conclusion. And, and this is a story that said three polygraphs had been administered, including to a person who was home alone the night of the murder. Ooh. And um, Cohen said, you know, it's only an investigative tool, and if someone has administered one, it doesn't mean they're a suspect. And I get tired of that whole investigative tool thing, because they say that all the time, but... Basically, I think they use them to manipulate yes, people. So it's more of a, a manipu- ma- manipulation tool. That's what I was just going to say. It's a ma- manipulation tool. And manipulation. Cohen reiterated that there were, quote, no real suspects in the murder. He said, we always hope for a swift conclusion in these cases, but some overall progress is being made. We are certainly not at a dead end now. Cohen also bristled in the story, those are my words, when the reporter, and this was Lazad again, asked if the murder is one of the, quote, so-called senseless crimes <laughs> committed in Maine recently, noting only that motive is still up in the air at this time. And you may wonder what that's all about, since the reporter didn't put any background in. It refers to a story about how there had been a surge of homicides that year, 15 in Maine since October. And this was the end of November wow. or middle of December. The final total for the year ended up being 29, but a bunch that of them were from that But Cohen had said in an article a day or two before, not about this, but just about the homicide rate in general, um, that many of the homicides in 1976 were senseless crimes of violence in which the victim did not know the assailant, rather than the traditional <laughs> crime of passion involving spouses, friends, or lovers. So, he in other said, words, domestic violence. Right. But they like to call it crime of passion. Right, which they yeah, they weren't calling it domestic violence back then. He yeah. said usually about 80% of the murders were crimes of passion, and that's his depiction. Now, I'm not a big fan of that phrase. No. I feel like it trivializes no. the murder, like somehow it's different, you know, not as bad or something. Um, but he said now that figure was turned around. The state average was around 35 25 to 35 a year at that time, wow. higher, higher, than, this higher now. than now. In 1972, there were 55. I looked up wow. to see what the rates were. Cohen said he figured 1976 would be about the same. Um, he couldn't find any reason for the pattern, but he did know a lot of the murders were tied to crimes. At that point, 19 of the 24 homicides that had happened that year had been solved, said State Police Captain Gerald Boutillier, <laughs> Boutillier, how do we say that name? Gerald? Probably Boudelier. Boudelier. Said State Police Captain Gerald Boudelier. He said Maine runs three to five years behind the metropolitan areas for the type of crime we get. Yeah, yeah, we're always behind. And before we go on, I just want to talk a little more about the era. People who think things are worse now crime-wise than they were in the 1970s ought to spend a day going through a newspaper from back then. And I'm not talking about the New York Times, you know, or some big paper. Go to a library and go through your local town newspaper. It'll be an eye-opener. While I was going through the Sentinel, and this was just for November, December, and January, 76 and 77, aside from the fatal fires, the huge amount of fatal and serious car accidents, the number of break-ins, stupid fights, assaults, and yeah, murders, it would have all surprised me if I hadn't been alive and aware 
back then and living in the area. One murder the day before Baxter's was in Gorham. A teenager shot and killed a father and his 13-year-old son who were hunting. The stories on that didn't have a lot of information because the killer was a juvenile, but it appeared to be a random shooting. The kid was out hunting humans, I guess. Um, There were six other November killings besides Janet Baxter and the two hunters. A couple were beatings, a couple were shootings. One was an arson fire that killed a guy in his 90s. I'm pretty sure a few were domestics. That's how they looked, just in the brief stories I saw about them. There were seven total in October, mostly shootings. Again, some were domestics, despite what Cohen said about a lot of them not being. And I think back then, it wasn't always clear what violence against women was. Yeah. And actually, that's true of Janet Baxter, too, as you'll find out. People have these very black and white ideas of why somebody's killed, and they certainly did back in the 70s, and they didn't understand domestic violence the way we hope they do now. In episode 26, we talked about the Blanche Kimball murder. That happened in Augusta over Memorial Day weekend you know, at the end of May. A former lodger of hers who came back to rob her then killed her. And I guess that would be considered a senseless crime, but they actually knew each other. That one was only solved a few years ago through DNA. And if you listen to episode 29, 26. 26. But that was the one the sound got really messed up. I actually uh, cut, overlapped yeah. part of it. I don't think there's two up there anymore, Yeah, but just be sure you listen to the later one. On December 30th, 1976, the Sentinel ran a full-page look at rape by reporter Becky Littleton. Somebody I don't know. It basically takes the out-there view that women are often raped by people they know, not strangers jumping out of bushes. Wow, really? And I give them credit. It had a big, long analysis story talking to crisis and counseling people and stuff. It had a first-person account by a woman who had been raped. And that was 40 years ago. It had another article, like, where to get help, but it had the really jarring title, What Do Women Want? Even though it, I want to say, like, brave of them to take on the topic back then, it still has very black and white. And by black and white, I'm not talking about race, obviously. I'm talking about... And people not understanding the nuances of what's going on. And generally, rape, as it is today when you think about it, was being looked at very superficially. Five years before Janet Baxter was murdered, there was another one, still unsolved, of Colby College student Kathy Murphy, who was found dead in a culvert on a road leading to the campus. Oh, that's right. It's fairly well known in the area, and Colby had moved to the outskirts of Waterville from downtown in the early 1950s. And though it had a shuttle for students, they called it the Jitney back then. I don't know if they still do. Apparently, students would hang out, especially young women students, hang out by the fence in front of a downtown church. And a number of men in town, local guys, would give them rides to campus. And after this killing, many young women came forward to report they'd been assaulted. Oh. By different, by a variety of men. Oh At the time, no one really reported them or seemed to take it seriously. The college did in the 70s attempt to put an end to that practice. I think it fizzled out. It's certainly not going on now. Yeah. And here's another thing that I totally forgot about until I came across it while looking through those sentinels. New York WABC weatherman Tex Antoine, I don't know if that name rings a bell with anyone, mm. was taken off the air but not fired. November 24th of that year, after, as part of his banter with the anchorman, after a story about an eight-year-old who was raped, he said, Confucius say, if rape is inevitable, relax and enjoy. Oh! Yes, he did. He was still going to draw his $56,000 a year salary, which was quite a bit 
40 years ago, and actually I wouldn't sneer at making that right now. Instead of being on the air, where apparently his views on rape would offend people, (laughs) he was going to work behind the scenes to help his replacement, Storm Field, prepare his weather report. And Storm Field's his real name. I would think so. <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> but that's the guy. That was the name of his replacement. So, Stormfield. But who said it? Somebody said it more recently. Was it Bobby uh, Knight or somebody said the thing about rape? Relax. Uh, you might as well relax and enjoy it. Some, I know Bobby Knight said it a while back, yeah, like well, years well, ago. Well, more recently but than he was comparing it to He was comparing not, it to getting fucked over recently. in a basketball yes, game. Yes, but I'm just saying. But still, he said it's like said being raped, yes. yeah. No, I mean that's a saying yes, I know. that people said all the time. I know, but I but more than one public figure has said it. Since and and that what, is I, what I'm saying, right? And what the point? And not gotten fired, right? The point I'm making on this is that at the same time this was going on, this guy said it on the air. Yeah. There was apparently some outrage, and I remember it from the time. But he wasn't fired or anything. No. Was, he, he wasn't given a cut. People and just saw him sensitive. Ah, what's wrong with people? Let men be men. Just I'm just trying to relay how people were looking at stuff. Closer to home, apparently some women in Waterville complained about a series of attacks on women in town. Here's the lead to a story that appeared in late December. Waterville police have labeled as nothing but a vicious rumor the talk that women have been attacked and molested in local parking lots in recent weeks. Mind you, this comes after the last place Janet Baxter was seen was in a Waterville parking lot. Captain Louis Simon said, There is absolutely no truth to the rumor. As many as 11 incidents of rape have happened in one area off Kennedy Memorial Drive. And by the way, that's the road the A&P is on. It's only a mile long. It's a strip of stores and stuff going into town. It's funny, the story doesn't reference at all Janet Baxter's murder. It's like they're looking at it as this thing. I know, like totally separately. Yeah. He said, quote, the last reported rape in Waterville was last summer, with an apprehension being made in that case. So, as far as he's concerned, nobody's being assaulted or raped in Waterville. That's right. Yeah, a few weeks. Yeah, even though he said that a few weeks before, the same day the scuba dive was postponed, a story also ran right underneath that one, the one about the scuba dive, that a man was arrested after a three-month spate of quote indecent exposures and sexual assaults. Leo Robert Sampas, 19, was arrested for burglary, assault, and public indecency. He was arrested after several victims picked him out of a lineup. He apparently assaulted a woman on November 22nd. That's the day before Janet Baxter was killed. And there was also a public indecency incident involving him the same day at the Maytag Laundry on Elm Street downtown. By the way, I love the way the Sentinel can't write about Janet Baxter without describing her half-naked body, and the possibility of rape. But this guy gets away without having his stuff described. The story about him didn't say what he did. It talked in very general terms. But every story they wrote about her had to describe her half-naked body. So anyway, that's the atmosphere back then. Total lack of understanding about crimes against women. And stuff, at least publicly, on the Janet Baxter murder fizzled out. In a year-end roundup for Norwich by correspondent Lazat, the lead was the Janet Baxter murder. And I've said before, I also just think it's weird it's being treated like a Snorjwalk story because that's where she was found, like these silos. She was from Oakland. She was last seen in Waterville. I know. And yet it's a total, it's being covered it's by weird. the Norjwalk correspondent. One of my least favorite journalism things, the headline, Norjwalk News Marred by Slain. We always used to joke about that at the union leader, like when people say something was marred. Like, God, it would have been a great year, but just like I had for that. Damn murder, you know. (laughs) He 
writes two paragraphs about it. The mysterious slain made front page headlines Thanksgiving Day, yet over one month later, state police detectives have still no motive for the crime, and no suspects have been arrested in connection with the case. The 30-year-old Oakland nurse was last seen alive at about 10 p.m. November 23rd, leaving a Waterville store, and no reasons have been advanced as to why the body was discovered in Norridgewalk. And that's... Duh. So he has an intro paragraph and then that. And that's followed by the controversy over the dump in town, and then another controversy involving the jumping frog contest. Oh, my God. Not well, to, come on. Not to small town things here, but... And the next news on the crime is a little frustrating to me. Apparently, state police issued a composite sketch in early January of someone who's wanted for questioning. The Sentinel never ran the sketch or reported before this January. Even though she was seen in Waterville. Right. Right. They never ran the sketch or reported um, before the January 10th story that even existed. If I had to guess why, I'd say someone dropped the ball because it was being considered a Norwich Walk story. But still, the whole point of a composite sketch is, is to get it out to there. See it. Right. Even I know they're usually I, horrible. Right. But. Apparently, it was published somewhere. By the time I got to this library, it was getting ready to close, and I didn't have time to look in, like, the Portland Press-Herald. Like, if it came out on Sunday, there was one Sunday paper, the main Sunday telegram. I didn't have time to look. I couldn't find it anywhere online, of course. And while they lead the story about the sketch with just the fact that it exists, and they speculate it could be the guy in the yellow Volkswagen, and it's been distributed to police departments, six paragraphs into the nine-paragraph story, after a lot of rehash about what happened, including the half-naked body, it's a a woman reported to the Waterville police that she recognized the person, but the attorney general's office said the identification was not positive, and word that the person tabbed was the Volkswagen driver was just another rumor. I'm not sure what they're supposed to be saying, but apparently they're poo-pooing it all. The story then says that state police got several thousand calls about yellow Volkswagens. <laughs> quote, when notice of the alert was released to the media, I'm not sure what alert they mean, maybe initially when they said there might have been a yellow yeah. Volkswagen involved. But none of the calls gave police any real leads. And I'll just say later, so people aren't totally fixated on the yellow Volkswagen, I think even though it comes up at his trial, and spoiler alert, he's eventually, there is somebody eventually tried for this. I think it was a red herring. I think somebody made it up to get a friend or an acquaintance in trouble. Ooh. But things definitely, as far as reporting, fizzled out. I didn't go through all the newspapers looking to see what else was reported. Meanwhile, among all this, though, on December 22nd, two very short sentences appeared in the Sentinel on an inside page with a bunch of other stories under the Fairfield News banner. Fairfield, by the way, is a town in between Waterville and Norridgewood. <laughs> the headline was, Police Seek Missing Woman. Ooh. Here's the entire story. Fairfield Center. The Maine State Police are looking for a local woman missing since December 13th. Anyone knowing the whereabouts of Pauline Rourke, 32, is asked to call the state police. And then there's a phone number, and that's the extent of the story. There's nothing else for the rest of the month. It doesn't look like the Sentinel ever followed up at some point. Do they have a picture? No. no. Two sentences. Wow. As it turns out, I think the state police are the ones who declared her missing. She was due to be interviewed about something she might know about Janet Baxter's murder oh. on December 14th, the day before she disappeared. In December of 1976, Pauline Rourke, 32, was twice divorced with a 12-year-old daughter, Honey. 
She was a nurse at Hilltop School in Waterville, and she lived in Fairfield Center. Fairfield Center is basically a church, a Grange Hall, and a store, and a bunch of homes, mostly mobile homes, stretching down Route 139. Pauline and Honey were living with Albert Cochran, who they called Pat. While Pauline is sometimes described as Albert's girlfriend, Honey said years later it was a platonic living arrangement, though Albert wanted it to be more, and they fought about that constantly. They were related in a distant way and had both grown up in Oakland, the next town over where Janet Baxter was from, although by all indications they didn't know her, even though the two women were nurses. Uh, I was going to say, it's interesting how many things they had in common, although it's, I'm sure it's coincidental that they both were about the same age, 30 and 32, and they both had daughters. And they were both nurses and, both and nurses. divorced. And, and they're both women. Yep. In the months Pauline and Albert lived together, they didn't get along, often fighting, as I said, about Albert wanting a relationship. Pauline had lived occasionally as a child with Albert's family on Summer Street in Oakland, where at this time his parents and brothers still lived. They both needed a place to live. Pauline was estranged from her current husband. She rented the mobile home, and Albert contributed to the rent. Hmm. Though they did have some good times. For instance, Pauline wanted wooden wagon wheels to put at the entrance to the driveway, and Albert had seen some at an abandoned farm in Smithfield, so that summer before they had gone around looking for wagon wheels, and that comes into play later. After the Baxter murder, Albert became obsessed, Honey said um, years later. He ate up all the coverage and one day drove out with Pauline and Honey to see the site where her body had been found. He insisted that they go look at it. It was a quick 10-mile drive west on Route 139, then a ride over the river onto River Road in Orangewalk. Honey told the Morning Sentinel in 2017 that after that, the fighting got worse. Pauline was sure Albert knew something or had something to do with Janet's death. She was scared and she didn't know what to do, Honey said. Then all of a sudden, my mother disappeared. On the morning of Monday, December 13, 1976, the day before Pauline was due to be interviewed by state police, she still hadn't gotten out of bed by the time Honey had to leave for school. Honey went into her mother's bedroom, and Pauline was lying motionless on her side with her back to the door, and Honey, assuming she was asleep, kissed her on the back of her head and left for school. It was the last time she saw her, and police later told Honey that they believed Pauline was dead at the time. Pauline was a good mother, Honey told Amy Calder of the Morning Sentinel in July 2017. Quote, she taught me how to cook. By the time I was four, I was making my own chocolate chip cookies. She taught me how to can. She taught me how to sew and knit. She was very artistic. She drew a lot. She took me out of school during a snowstorm. She told them I had a dentist appointment, and she took me sledding. She told me I was one of those kids who never missed school, and I deserved a break. She was a Girl Scout leader my Girl Scout leader, and we did arts and crafts. I remember Friday nights eating tapioca pudding with her and watching movies. Honey's father was not part of their lives. Pauline had married another man when Honey was seven, who was nice but was also a drinker, and Pauline was on the break from him when she moved in with Cochran, which was, again, not a romantic relationship. Honey said the night before her mother disappeared, Pauline and Albert had a big fight, and Pauline said she was going to go back to her husband. When Honey got home from school that Monday, her mother was nowhere to be found. That night, after Honey went to bed, Cochran woke her up at 11 p.m. and drove her to his mother, Edith's house in Oakland. She went back to sleep, but around 3 a.m., he woke her up and drove her back to Fairfield Center, where he insisted she do the dishes. Honey said she didn't want to. She was tired and had to go to school in the morning, and Cochran attacked her. 
He had his hands right around my throat and I couldn't breathe, she told the Sentinel 41 years later. I kicked him where it counted Mm. and he left me alone. I think if I hadn't kicked him where it counts, he would have killed me. She told the Sentinel it was the first time Cochran had physically abused her, but she hadn't liked him from the start. In 1998, she told Amy Calder, the same reporter, that Cochran was always angry and once kicked their dog repeatedly, Ah. injuring it. Ah. He had huge, huge hands, she remembered, which makes me think she's remembering his hands for a reason. Maybe because he choked her, maybe because he hit her mom with them. I don't know. She said he'd get mad, turn beet red, and her mom would back off. I don't remember a day when there wasn't an argument, she said. In 2017, she said, he was just a weird person to be around, and I kept telling my mother I didn't like him. A couple of days after her mother disappeared, an aunt from Vermont came and took her to live with them in Vermont. I was 12 years old. I didn't want to think of my mother hurt, but at the same time, I knew she wouldn't just ever leave me. We were exceptionally close. It's not clear if any of Rourke's relatives reported her missing, but according to Maine State Police missing person listings, as I said earlier, Rourke was scheduled to be interviewed by the state police as a possible witness against Cochran in the Janet Baxter murder when she disappeared. So here's the stuff the police don't tell reporters. And this is according to Albert Cochran's later court appeal. In the Janet Baxter murder, like I said, spoiler, he does get arrested. Uh, You probably already figured that out. And I'll get to that later. It wasn't in 1976, that's for sure. And I'm reading directly from the document, by the way. The medical examiner noted that a copious amount of semen was found in Baxter's vulva and vagina, and samples of the semen were preserved. So, you know, there was more to it than what the Sentinel... Ballistic tests on the two bullets removed from Baxter's body determined that the murder weapon was a 22 caliber ROM handgun, or ROM maybe, R-O-H-M. The gun manufacturer believed that only 14 ROM handguns were in Maine. The police located and tested 12 of these guns, and none were the murder weapon. One of the unaccounted guns was believed to have been stolen from a construction site where Cochran worked in October Mm -hmm. 1976, and Cochran had expressed an interest in the gun to a co-worker. The murder weapon has never been found. The police questioned Cochran about Baxter's murder. He denied any involvement in the murder and denied knowing Baxter. He said that on the night of the murder, he had been drinking and smoking pot with three strangers in the parking lot of the Waterville bar, that he and the three strangers drove in two cars to the Waterville A&P, where Cochran parked his car and left with the strangers in the other car. He parted company with the strangers in Skowhegan and walked to his brother's house. So he was at the A&P. He, so he, he said. Yeah. to that. Okay. A warrant to seize head and pubic hairs from Cochran was obtained and executed. The hairs apparently did not match the hairs found with Baxter's body. We're talking about a car with 300 things in it. So who, and when, and was, they had a, when was this This written? was in 1976. Okay. This was written in 2000 during his appeal. Oh, okay. But this is what happened in 1976. Okay. This is... Part of the 1976 police investigation. Cochran was not charged with the murder, and he later moved to Florida. So basically, they took hair samples from him. They didn't match hairs found on her. Pauline Rourke disappeared. Maybe they assumed that she didn't want to testify and was scared of him and took off, Mm -hmm. leaving her 12-year-old daughter behind with this guy she was scared of. Yeah. It's also not clear if Pauline knew about Cochran's past. Honey, at the age of 12, sure didn't. When Cochran returned to his home state of Maine in 1976, he'd just gotten out of prison in Illinois after serving nine years for killing his wife, Patricia Ann, 19, in 1964, 
who he'd married in 1960 in Kalamazoo, Michigan. When she was 15. Apparently, yes. May 15 or just turned 16. Yeah. yeah. Cochran, 25 at the time of the February 1964 killings, told police, I choked her and choked her and choked her until she dropped. This is all from a Chicago Tribune, from Chicago Tribune stories in 1964. They did a very good job, by the way. I just want to say that because I'm always shitting on reports. Apparently the couple were estranged. Patricia Ann had been found dead in the living room of the duplex she rented in Joliet, wearing a nightgown and wrapped in a blanket with a towel over her face. The bodies of Christine, three, Christopher, two, and Craig, ten months, were found in the bathtub wearing their pajamas and stabbed several times oh. in the chest. Police were called by a neighbor that Monday night when the neighbor hadn't seen Patricia Ann or the kids all day and didn't see any activity in the apartment, according to the February 12, 1964 Tribune story. When police couldn't get in, they went to the discount store where Cochran worked as an assistant manager. He said he didn't have a key. So police went back to the apartment and broke in. After they found the bodies, they arrested Cochran. They found a key to the apartment in his pocket, and he also had scratches on his arms and face that he couldn't explain. Cochran first said his wife and kids were alive when he left the apartment Sunday night. But he, quote, broke down under questioning, saying that he called her at 11.45 p.m. from a bowling alley, saying he was coming over. He said when he got home, they got into a terrible argument over a separate maintenance suit she'd filed. And that's a legal document, I looked it up, asking a spouse to support another spouse during a legal separation. He said he left intending to go home, but his car wouldn't start. He went back in and told his wife he was going to sleep there and laid down on the living room floor. Uh In the middle of the night, he was awoken by Patricia Ann laughing in the hallway and saying, You'll never see Christine again. (laughs) Ha ha. I've taken care of her. He told police, I went into the bathroom and saw the children in the tub. I knew Christine was dead. I couldn't help her. Then I choked my wife. So it's the old, my wife killed the kids, so I had to kill her yeah, story. Yeah, I've heard that before. Yeah. The story says that officials weren't satisfied with that story, and Cochran was due to take a polygraph at the John Reed and Associates Institute in Chicago. Oh, and we all John know who John Reed is. is the, the, right, the guy the who... The Reed method. The Reed method of questioning. You know you did it. Yeah. We know you did it. Although in this, case, in this case, I think it worked. For the yeah, too good, not evil. The only blood police found was in the bathtub with the dead kids, Aww. and on clothes that Cochran had sent to be cleaned that Monday. There was no blood on Patricia Ann's clothes. Patricia Ann's father, Robert Sinclair, told the Tribune that Cochran had threatened to kill her many times and had hit her many, many times and was hot-tempered. Sinclair said his daughter was trying to hold the marriage together. And I just want to point out that in 1964. The Chicago Tribune did what the Morning Sentinel apparently didn't do in 1976 with Janet Baxter, and that's find people who knew her to talk to, because there's not one friggin' quote I can find. I know. They quote the obituary, you know, if they tried and nobody would talk, they should have said so, but I don't think anyone tried. Cochran had tried to join the Kalamazoo police force, according to Robert Sinclair, and pass all the tests except the psychological one. Uh and didn't get the job. He also applied with the post office, but wasn't hired. The story concludes, Sinclair described his daughter as a clean religious girl who was family-oriented. Mrs. Cochran customarily wore a chain and Methodist religious medal around her neck. The broken chain and medal were found on the floor beside her body. They do a nice job. They don't oversell it. That's right. Cochran changed his plea to guilty that September in the middle of his trial, 
and was sentenced to 50 to 75 years. And yet... In exchange for the guilty plea, the charges he killed the three kids were dropped. The plea came after the jurors heard tapes of both his initial confession, where he said Patricia Ann had killed the kids, and then a tape recording of his lie detector test, where he said he'd killed them. He never signed his confession, according to the Chicago Tribune. The prosecutor told the Tribune that he feared, after recent rulings, that the second confession could be reversed on appeal, and I think that's around the time the Supreme Court ruled that lie detectors weren't admissible. It doesn't go into details about that. but And that explains a uh, discrepancy. I kept finding the later Sentinel stories kept saying he told police his wife killed the kids. The Bangor Daily News story said he admitted to killing the kids. And I'm like, where did he admit to killing the kids? Where did yeah. he? And then I found in this that nice he had. Yes. The story said he'd be eligible to apply for parole in 11 and a half years, but it must have come early. Because yep. nine years later, he was back home in of Maine. he was. In Maine, high school classmates later recalled Cochran is a quiet and antisocial guy who got angrier as he got older. Mm-hmm. He played football at what was then Williams High School. It's now Messalonsky Regional High School. But he didn't socialize with his teammates or anybody else much. In the early 90s, May began to use DNA testing in criminal cases. It's not clear when they started to use it to look at cold cases, and I've searched many times before even doing this on what Maine's first conviction with DNA evidence was, and I can't find it. But in late 1997, DNA testing was done on the copious amount of semen there was copious amount. that had been found in Baxter's body and on the hairs taken from Cochran at the time of the 1976 investigation. They matched. Yeah, interesting. Cochran was arrested in Stort, Florida on March 17, 1998. He was married, and he was charged with Janet Baxter's rape and murder. He'd been living there for a while, I think since at least 1988, but he had moved, I think, out of the Waterville area shortly after the whole Janet Baxter thing. He had some health problems, but he played in a bowling league. He also had a gun, which as a convicted felon, he wasn't allowed to have. Yeah. When it was found when he was being extradited to Maine, he told Florida authorities he'd since been pardoned of his Illinois murder charges, but it turned out that wasn't true. He was returned to Maine, and they took blood samples and the DNA analysis of his blood and the semen taken from Baxter's body proved that Cochran was the source of the semen. By the way, and this plays a part later, multiple semen donors were ruled out with that. It was just him. Uh There was nobody else. Cochran continued to deny that he knew Baxter or had sex with her or was involved with her murder. Before the trial, his lawyers asked for a change of venue, which was granted, and it was moved to Bangor in Penobscot County, which is about an hour's drive from where the murder took place. He then made a request to have the venue changed again after jury was picked in May of 1999 because the Bangor Daily News had published an article basically saying he had been convicted in Illinois for killing his wife, blah, blah, blah. That was rejected, and that story also said he was suspected in the disappearance of Pauline Rourke. At his trial, the defense used the alternative suspect's defense, saying four other guys did it. I got this from court documents. The articles that you can find some of the Bangor Daily News articles online, but a guy named Skip Kelly testified. He said he was acquainted with four men, Pearlie Doyen, Armin hmm. Boudreaux. Pearlie's a name, a main name. I know. Armin Boudreaux, Galen Lassard, and Alan Pelletier. Mm. 
in the mid-1970s. He delivered drugs and other items for Doyen. According to Kelly, Doyen ran an illegal garage where he altered vehicle identification numbers on cars. Kelly testified that on the night of Baxter's murder, he was with Doyen in the office of the garage, and Doyen told Boudreaux and Lassard to go do what they had to do. Pelletier arrived with a satchel containing money for drugs, and Doyen counted the money. About then, Boudreaux drove into the garage with Janet Baxter on the passenger seat. Another car followed, driven by Lassard. Kelly testified that he heard talking and laughing, and he saw Boudreaux, Lassard, and Pelletier, one after another, have sex with Baxter mm. in the back of the car. Then Doyen pulled a gun from under his shirt and ordered Boudreaux, Lassard, and Pelletier to stand against the wall. Doyen then dragged Baxter out of the car and shot her twice. Kelly, who said he saw this from the window in the office overlooking the garage, left the office and walked over to the car where he saw Baxter with blood coming from her nose, mouth, and chest. He went back to the office, took his money, and left. He testified he didn't know Cochran, and Cochran was not at the garage. He also testified that a few weeks earlier, Baxter, Janet Baxter, had asked Kelly if she could borrow money from him because she owed a drug debt to Doyen. And I I just want to say, by by all accounts, Janet Baxter was not involved with drugs, and this story could have happened anyway, given the timeline of that night. But oh, she was a hard-working, right, she was a hard-working single mom who worked as a nurse and went home and took care of her kid. State police detectives and Waterville police, who had investigated the Baxter murder between 1977 and 1998, did testify that they considered Doyen, Boudreaux, Lassard, and Pelletier suspects. And two of the officers said that Boudreaux resembled the composite sketch that was based on the description of a witness, Clarice Merrill, of a man she said she'd seen in a Ford LTD with a woman. And so that's where that sketch came from, that she'd come forward and said she'd seen a woman who looked like Baxter in a Ford, similar to the one Baxter was driving, with a guy, and she gave that sketch. She said she'd seen a man and woman on the night Baxter's body was discovered on River Road near the location where the body was found. And she also said she'd seen a yellow Volkswagen with the word bug written on it, stop on River Road near the Ford, and she saw two men get out. It doesn't say this, and it's frustrating, but I went back to that article where Cohen in 1976 seemed annoyed by the whole Volkswagen thing and everything, and I think they kind of determined that the whole Volkswagen story was uh, not true, and this woman kind of made stuff up. Yeah, it sounds sounds very... It's one of those groups where it's a bunch of people doing drugs, going after each other. Lassard's ex-wife testified that she and Lassard did have a yellow Volkswagen with the word bug written on it. And another woman, Dawn Ann Roberts, testified that she was at a garage in 1979 with Doyen Boudreaux and others. And Boudreaux bragged about killing two women, both Baxter and Kathy Murphy, the Colby College student. Mm who'd been killed in 1971, and he said that one had been fucked to death and put in the trunk of a car, and she testified that Boudreaux said that Doyen paid Pelletier to do the killings because the women both owed him drug money. None of those match any of the evidence in either case. I'm not going to do the whole Kathy Murphy thing. I think it was just people talking. Yeah, oh, I killed that bitch. At the trial, the defense also had videotaped testimony of a woman who was a bartender who knew these guys, who told police in 1987 that in 1976 she overheard a telephone conversation with Doyen, who was acting kind of macho, saying something about putting somebody in a trunk and blah, blah, blah. And that was all determined inadmissible 
because Doyen was dead, it was hearsay, there was no proof what he was talking about. The prosecution argued it could have been braggadocio, and she didn't even tell police about it until 1987. No shit, it's like if she was so concerned, why didn't she tell them in 1976? Right. And the state argued that given the evidence, Kelly's testimony about the four guys at the garage raping, gang raping Baxter and shooting her didn't make sense, and there was no evidence that anyone but Cochran took part, making that story implausible. The other stories seem to have been dismissed, not plausible, people getting involved. It's hard to tell because I don't have enough information about what was going on then. And there was also the DNA. Yeah. It only showed it was Cochran's, and there was nobody else's DNA. Yeah. That's the thing about DNA. But remember, this was in the early stages of DNA being used in trial. And and I remember, you know, just working for a newspaper in New Hampshire at the time when it was being brought up. And just people talking about it. People didn't fully understand it. And a lot of people... Well, like the OJ trial was one where it was a fairly new thing and people acted like it was, you know... Right, right. You can't really trust it. Right, like what does this mean? And at one point, apparently his attorneys said they would prove there were multiple donors to the DNA if they actually brought it up. I think it was in their opening arguments, and I can't find if they... Which they can say whatever the fuck. Right, and I can't find if they brought it up in testimony, but the testing apparently showed there wasn't, and that held up. Michaela Murphy, who later became a judge, who was one of the people defending Cochran, also said that just because his semen was in her... Didn't mean he killed her. And I I understand that as a legal premise. But looking at the big picture, here's a woman who's sick. She's tired. She has a sore throat and she has a cold. Even if she did sleep around, which there's no evidence she did, it's very cold out. Her new boyfriend and her daughter are at home. She's going to get cold medicine. She's going to have sex with a stranger in a parked car at the A&P or have sex with multiple guys. I know. You know, it just doesn't pass the street face test. Michaela Murphy also wondered why the police didn't believe all the testimony, you know, about those four guys and everything, because up until the fall of 1998, it was the state of Maine that thought Alan Pelletier and Armin Boudreaux had something to do with the murder. But I think what it really was, they also thought Cochran did, but they were using hair in 1976, using hair samples and shit, and we know how reliable that is. And they, I think they had a bunch of suspects, and I think, from what I can tell, trying to sift through all this information, is that there were a lot of stories going around, and police were trying to track down leads, yes. and these four guys were involved in drugs and known to the police, and there were people telling stories on them, and for various reasons. I think the yellow Volkswagen was like a total... Yeah, I don't think that... And like we've talked about before in other cases, and I'm sure it happens all the time, people will throw out the names of people they're trying to get in trouble, or they might really think right. that, and that so the police has something to do with right. it. Who knows? But and so the police consider people as suspects yeah. and look into it, and I think one of the issues in the 20 years before they were able to test the DNA was they had these little things, and nobody, and Pauline Rourke had disappeared, the one person who could have said, yeah, I think Albert did it and not giving him an alibi and stuff. And he may have been one of the people who was polygraphed. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what the results of those. You know, we know Janet Baxter's ex-husband, her new boyfriend, and a third guy were, but they never said what the results were or who the third guy was. They didn't say who the first two guys were. I think the reporter figured that out somehow. In any case, 
Assistant Attorney General Bill Stokes, who's in many of our stories, who prosecuted the case, told the judge that the defense's theory was, quote, a bunch of innuendo assumptions, speculation, and conjecture. He also accused that guy, Doyen, who was dead by the time of trial, is engaging in braggadocio. (laughs) In any case, Cochran was convicted and sentenced to life without parole. His appeals focused on the change of venue, the not allowing the evidence of the bartender who overheard the phone call that nobody really knows what, what it was about and that type of thing. But all his appeals were denied. Yeah. Over the years, state police still wanted to prove that he also killed Pauline Rourke. He would never quite go as far as saying he did it, but he did tell them that her body was in an old well on property in Smithfield, somewhere along East Pond Road where they'd gone to look for those wagon wheels. He said it had a collapsed barn, and there was slate around the well, and um, you'd be astounded how many... I was going to say there's probably a lot of... There's a zillion collapsed yes, barns there are many collapsed barns. In any case, police... And has, wells, probably. Right. In any case, police searched um, and haven't found her body. Aww. They also got Honey, her daughter, who's now in her 50s, to record conversations in jail with Cochran. She visited him several times and asked him questions about her mother's disappearance. He would play games sometimes no, and lie, she told Amy Calder of the Morning Sentinel. But sometimes he would slip up and say things like the water in the well was cold and he knew it because he put his hands into it. I think it's part of that, like, narcissistic thing where he, yes. was not, he doesn't want to admit he did it, but he also wants people to know he did it. And he also just wants attention and and people paying attention to him. Right. And Honey said he'd say three guys killed her, and then he'd use the word I. He'd say, I shot her. I was just in shock by what he said. He'd say he shot her in the head. He chuckled and said he was glad it wasn't his mother. I I know. Sometimes Cochran would say cruel things about her mother. He said, I threw her over the Waterville Winslow Bridge. He even talked about the mattress she was on. I got mad and blew up at him. Rourke said sometimes she'd have to leave the room because what he said made her sick. But she knew she had to be nice to get him to keep talking. She also said she was trying to get the truth out of him because she wanted people to know what he'd done to her mother. Cochran died on June 27, 2017, 18 years into his sentence. Pauline Rourke's body hasn't been found. After he died, police asked for people's help. If they recognize the description of the well and the barn and the property, she still remains one of Maine's many unsolved homicides. Yeah, my theory, just kind of quick about what happened, first to Janet Baxter, you know, Albert Cochran and Pauline Rourke weren't getting along. He was fighting with her daily about wanting to be her boyfriend. Yeah. (laughs) So my feeling is he was just pissed and wanted to take it out. And who knows how many other women he'd assaulted or raped. It sounded like there was a lot a of lot, that. A lot, I'm sure. But I'm betting the one place where there were people, aside from the bars in Waterville, was the A&P parking lot. Yes. And on a cold November Tuesday night, even though it was two days before Thanksgiving, it probably wasn't very crowded. I think he abducted her right when she was getting into her car. Yeah. I think he probably even raped and killed her there. I haven't read anywhere about where they thought the murder happened, like if there was blood in the car itself. I know. He may not have shot her in the car. You wonder how he would have subdued her or tied her up. Well, if he had a gun, I mean... So either he either did it there or the woman who said she saw the two people in the Ford saw him and her. But in any case, you know, you're like, okay, where the hell do I go? You go down Kennedy Memorial Drive and get on 95. He's familiar... If they're going 
to the one grocery store that's open at night. You get on the highway and go. So he got off as though he were going to go home, and he kept driving. He got to Nordwalk. He took a right, and there's the river. Here's where I'm going to dump this body. It seems like a distant place, or they're not in the same place, but it's a very logical yeah. way for him to go. And yeah. he either did it in the A&P parking lot or did it there. Yeah, and then with, with Pauline, obviously, she was going to talk to the cops. He didn't want her to, and he killed her. I'm surprised he didn't kill Honey as I well. Too. What I know about this case is what I remember from the interviews with Honey and stuff after uh, when he died and stuff, too. I remember when he was arrested, and I remember when he, vaguely, but I remember reading the stuff with her. You know, she wants to find out what happened to her mother. And I thought the same thing. I'm surprised he didn't kill her. But and it's lucky for her that she got out of right. there. But got, what I'm wondering is if she had enough engagement with people because she went to school. And then when she came home, her mom wasn't there. But if he knew it would be too risky. Yeah. And he was just trying to figure out what to do with her. And when he tried to strangle her because she went through the dishes, I wonder if he brought her back to his house because he was going to try to think of some way to kill her. But then just realized the heat's going to be on. Yeah. And who knows, he may have told the police, hey, she took off. It's easy that if it's an adult missing to say, well, she, uh, and, you know, she you took watch, off. Although, um, you could say that about a preteen or a teen, too. Oh, well, they ran away because she ran away because right. she was upset but, with me because her mom took off. But was, my whatever. feeling is it was already out there yeah. that Pauline was gone, yes. but Honey was still around. Yes. So now, so yes. it would be harder. It would be explain. harder. But I don't think there's any doubt in anyone's mind that he oh, killed Pauline yeah. Rohr. And who knows who else he may have oh, killed. Knows. Because the whole Janet Baxter thing sounds pretty slick. Yeah, that he had done something like that before. Right, that he was able to pull it off with and precision. And a brave woman. But, I mean, the thing we, we know is that a lot of rapes aren't reported. Most aren't. And I don't think in Waterville, look at the reaction when women complained about assaults. Just weeks after this happened, I the know. cop is like, oh, those are just vicious rumors. The last rape we had here was last summer, with no understanding that, or the fact that the girls who were getting assaulted when they got rides back to Colby, and come on, girls, walk the fucking mile. I've walked that. I used to park at Colby when I worked in Waterville and walked well, it, which was part of Well, this is 40-something years later, so telling them that now is I know, that's help. true. And it's not their fault that they were assaulted, but nobody took it seriously. I know. Nobody gave a shit. They still don't take it seriously. Right. And also for people who are thinking about it, Albert Cochran couldn't have killed Kathy Murphy in 1971 because he was in prison in Illinois. Yes. So he would have if he could have. He, he probably would have. And who knows? There's a lot of missing women. There's so many. And so a lot of unsolved homicides. Anytime I research one thing, I find so many... It's disheartening. Yeah. It's, and also... Like, Janet Baxter was somebody who would be missed. You wonder about people who necessarily that's, wouldn't be reported that's missing. That's right. People get estranged from their families who don't keep in touch. I was listening to that podcast, Bear Brook, and there was some kind of, I wouldn't call it shaming. It's very complicated, but this woman who disappeared with her baby in Manchester, New Hampshire in 1980, 81, well, nobody in her family reported her missing, blah, blah, blah. People... Who don't, especially if somebody's with a narcissistic psychopath who distances you from your family, people are like, oh, gee, I haven't heard from Denise in a while. But they don't necessarily report the missing. And also one thing, and we'll talk about this maybe a little more during our recommendations, it's unclear to me what happens 
when you make a missing person report. It's unclear to me if anyone looked for Pauline Rourke or state police just said, hey, we're looking for Pauline Rourke, if anyone's seen her. It's funny, when I was looking through those newspapers around the time Janet Baxter was killed, there was a little article about a man who hadn't been seen for several days. And there was never any follow-up in the paper. Like, I found when I worked for the papers, if we had a story about somebody missing, if they showed up or something, we'd have a little story that yeah. they were found. And the thing is, nowadays, we were talking earlier about the perception that there's less crime back in the old days, and there actually wasn't. What there is nowadays, even though there are less newspapers, there's a lot more news reporting. Yes. And anything, things get reported over and over and over again. And because there's so much media, I think that they're looking for stuff not so they usually stick to the same stories all the time. Yeah, they're looking for the low-hanging fruit. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, so especially a missing woman, especially Janet Baxter, because she was a nurse. Well, so it was, that would have been, nowadays, would have been constantly on the news. Right. They're like, not, still no word. Blah, right. blah, blah. They're not hanging around at the Bob Inn. Yeah. Um, which is a tavern. A tavern. tavern. In, in Waterville. That is no more, actually. It got renamed. The Bob Inn. It's the one that's in Empire Falls, if anybody uh. But, um, you know, they're not doing that. Janet Baxter, and I understand the defense has to defend their guy and alternative suspects is the way to do it. But you would hope that people would have stuck up for her. And one of the things, too, is I don't understand the not finding family, trying to find family and people to talk about her. I know. They knew who her family was. They had it in the obituary. They knew where she went to high school. They knew where she worked. They knew where she lived. I mean, and like you said, if the family won't talk, then they we tried to contact the family. They they weren't interested. Right. Or something instead of just not talking right. about So instead her. you're reading every single article about her partially clothed body and that's what you and know the about the dehumanizing her, her anyway. And but I'm glad that that fucker went to jail finally. And thing, I do feel bad for her, honey, because... It reminds uh, me a little bit of Sarah Perry, who wrote After the Eclipse, about her mother, Crystal Perry's murder. Yes, I talked about, yes. I, think I, I was thinking that reminded me a where, lot of that. You know, she same was the age, 12-year-old yes, daughter and single mom. Yep. Her mom's killed, and she immediately starts getting shuttled from relative yep. to relative. And there's no attention paid... And I don't know what, you know, as far as Honey goes, or Janet Baxter's daughter, Julie, who I don't know if anybody tried to track down and talk to, to what this kid is going. They've lost their mother. They were the only child of a single mother, you know, and then guys like Albert Cochran get kind of a pass. You know, he was obviously a fucking psychopath who killed his wife and kids. Well, look, he killed four people, but he was only in prison for like Well, I think they were. I think they were afraid, nine years, I think they were afraid that if he didn't take that plea deal, he would get off because the rules about lie detector tests had changed. But it would have been difficult to prove that he killed the three kids. Nowadays. So if he went to trial and the jury believed that, oh my God, this guy walked in, what would you do if you saw that someone had killed your your kids? Of course you'd strangle her. You know, I mean, he could have gotten off. Nowadays, now, I think forensic, not only DNA, but other forensic investigation has changed enough that maybe they would have been able to prove better, like that the kids were killed after yes. he was and that type of thing. Like and the guy, yeah. the the dipshit in Colorado or wherever oh, recently God. who killed his wife and little daughters. Yeah. Anyway, and so well, thank you. But I think now we have some recommendations. Yay!
So today, it's one of the rare occasions when we're both rating the same thing. Yes. So we both have been <laughs> binge-watching binge watching on uh, ID and it's on Hulu, too. Well, season six, seven, and eight are Well, on the Hulu. problem with ID is if you don't have cable like we don't. I mean, I've got basic cable. I don't so have a cable any. provider, but if you don't get the Discovery Channel, a lot of stuff is locked on yeah. ID. Now, it's a big conspiracy between cable providers and streaming services yes. because they don't, they must and, be but paying But the thing off. is, on ID, you have to watch a million frigging commercials. It's not like they're not getting income. Well, I think the streaming services are, it's not because of their income. They, the cable companies must have something yeah. on them. Yeah, they don't want them. But in any case. So we've been watching Disappeared. Right. We watched it on that, and then we they don't have all the seasons unlocked. But on Hulu, they have what? Season on, six through eight. On ID itself, unlocked, they had maybe ten One. episodes from the first season. Or I the think ten top all time episodes. No, they had the first season. And they then season I think they had two seasons. I think I well, watched two. There was all, well, maybe you could because oh, you have cable, oh, and I be. couldn't because I don't. But on Hulu, they have s- seasons six, seven, and eight. So we've been, so watch- we've been binge watching. Independently. And this wasn't a plan. No, we both happened. just watched it. I'll start bad reenactment. Well, why don't oh. we just say, and it disappeared is an hour long or 40 whatever minutes yeah, long. Yeah, 48 minutes. Long. True crime doc show about people who have disappeared. Yes, and sometimes it's not always never to be found again. Sometimes they explain how they got found and or where they are or whatever, right. and other times right. they don't. So we're starting our negative Nellies. If you don't know, we're going to go down to 10 points, but we start with 10, and then we take off points. Let's do that. The first one, bad reenactment. <laughs> I'm taking a point off. Uh-uh. A blanket statement about reenactments in almost, I would say, 99.9% of reenactments are unnecessary. Right. And la- just pure laziness. There's no reason most of the time that it's not show adding them talk. anything. Show, just show them talk. And if they need to show how something happened, I would prefer computer animation or something that shows the logistics. And then you don't have to pay actors. I just don't understand. They, you know, the, and there are times there are shows that have good ones or useful ones. And but we've even talked, then, like, they're the not innocent necessary. man. Yes, but even then, I don't think they're necessary. But bad ones they're can be bad. They're almost always filler. And the ones on this, one thing is funny. Is <laughs> and we are, both thought about this without there are, talking without, about it. Right, it came to us. In a lot of cases, the real people aren't very attractive, and then they have these weirdly attractive people playing them. It's like, okay, whatever. But in this, there are times when there are very attractive people, and the, people <laughs> and the reenactors them are, not. are not. It's weird. And the, there doesn't seem to be much attempt at all to pick actors that look anything like the person they're portraying. Sometimes even the age isn't the right. same. Sometimes they're the same. Like last night, the guy had a mustache, and the reenactor had a mustache. Yeah, some- and, and I just find a lot of the ones, and I'm taking a point away, too. I'm just, I just find a lot of the ones in the show unnecessary because they do, and we'll talk about it. Well, they'll have, like... They'll say, so-and-so called so-and-so, and they'll show the then guy on the phone, I'm right. just calling, you know, hi. Right. And it's like, and, and okay, it's like, we don't, right. I don't and it's like, that. show the person who's talking, just show the person who's talking. Most of the time, it doesn't even matter. I mean, and then there was uh, one where I kept getting confused between who the real person was and who the reenactor <laughs> was. And it's, happened in a couple of And it's times. like, you should also use them sparingly. One thing I will say about the reenactments, but I'm not giving them back any points. Or this might be under missing pieces anyways. 
that when it is an actual recording, it says actual recording. Yes. And when it's a reenactment, it says reenactment. Yes, and, which is good. It and, has a little thing up at the top And also, left. I started, the seventh season started last night for me. Uh, and they, they're doing them a tiny bit differently where in the reenactments, a lot of times they're blurring. Oh, okay. The people or person are just showing, like, hands and stuff. Yeah, so they're not a little better. But I'd have to watch more of the seventh season to know if okay. they actually... So, yeah, I'm taking away a point, too. Okay. Narrative cliches. Yes. And it isn't so much in the structure of the story. Um, a lot of these structures are the same because disappearances, but in the narration itself... But then a twist would happen right. that changed the whole... They used a lot it, of... I was, all of them. Just like Dateline and... And, I'm, and I'm not saying twists don't happen, but the way they were things... Or they then they found something that changed the whole course of the investigation. Right, right. And they do it on all of these shows. And it rarely is it changing the whole course, if ever. Right. It's just giving it's, them more information. Right. And it's a fucking clickbait-ish type of... And and Bullshit. also, I feel like sometimes they alter the the structure of what really happened in order to make something look like a twist that isn't. Yeah. And part of that is with storytelling, it makes it more dramatic, and I understand it, but sometimes it just confuses the, too, though, the story. So um, I, I'm taking away. Yeah, me. there's no point on that. Okay, racial or gender obtuseness. I'm not taking any point. I didn't see anything like uh, that. Here's what I haven't seen. Black people. No, they had that one where the girl that went, one, went right. to the salon or whatever, and then she went. Yeah, um, there, that there, was in season one. Right. There are two I can think of, two. And the other one where the girl was a college student. Yes, who went on that long ride with her kid. I can think yes. of two out of the dozens That's true. I've watched. That's true. And the interesting thing is, it's not just pretty women who have disappeared. They have old men. They have young men. They have older women. They have all sorts of different types of yes, people. Yes, that's true. But I'm not saying in their however many seasons they but have. But they have that basketball player and his girlfriend. So that's three then. I'm just saying. Right. But what I'm saying is it, there doesn't seem to be a an attempt yes, to make it true. racially diverse. So I'm taking away... Woo! Half a point. Okay, I'll take away half to you. I made convinced you. Yes. See, as a white person, you didn't realize there were no black people. Well, I did, but I will say in the reenactments, some of the minor characters who aren't people on the show, but you know how you have reenactments yeah. where they do sometimes have people of color. Lack of good visuals. I didn't take anything I off. I didn't take anything off because they do have a lot of footage from TV. They do have crime yes, scene photos. And my feeling is, hey, use that more because yes. those are good. Use it more. I'd rather have those than I'd rather see the crime happy. scene photos and crime scene videos and TV videos and stuff because when they use them, it works better than yes. reenactments. Yeah, I didn't take away. Missing pieces? Yes. Oh, you did? I didn't. Yes. Okay. But you might talk me out. There are frequently missing pieces in the plots that have me asking questions. Like the one of the guy in Boulder, Colorado, who defrauded his... Um, oh, yeah. And it's like, how did he get out of the building? They never explain it. Yeah, like, there's no way he could have gotten out of the building without being seen by the cameras. So, okay, then once he was found, because this is one where he's found, how did he get out of 
the building. They frequently oversimplify things. So you don't understand what's going on with the police investigation. Lots of times, and this happens in a lot of them, people call to make a missing person report, and it's like, well, you can't make it, somebody else has to make it. Somebody who lives in the state, they lived in, has to make it, blah, blah, blah. I would love to see, just for once, somebody explain how missing person reports were. Even if they're unique to every single police department, they should just say that. And so I find that there are a lot of things that are glossed over or oversimplified. So you're like, well, wait a minute, what about... And that one with the guy in Boulder was a big one, because there are a lot of missing pieces to it that just didn't make sense. So I'm taking away a point. Wow, I'll take away half a point. So, inaccuracy, anachronisms. If something's inaccurate, I don't know it is. Yeah, that's how I feel. It's like, how am I supposed to know unless I've read about it somewhere else? Right, it's in the missing pieces. So, storytelling negative one. Kind of for the missing pieces part of it, but also just... I felt like it could be done a little bit. I, I, I took away half a point because I think they do a good job of, first of all, getting people who are involved in it to talk, whether it be the cops or family members or stuff. Or her stuff. And they also do structure it in a dramatic way so you don't know if the person's been found. Well, that's they don't spoil true. things. I could change it to a half. And the reason I take it off half a point is for what I mentioned before, that sometimes I think they deliberately change the order that things happened in. But I think they do a good job of keeping the suspense going so you're wondering, so you're not saying like, oh, I know how this is going to turn out. Like when you watch that show Stocked, which I was binge watching before this, I like this better, you know immediately if the person wasn't killed because they're one of the people oh, talking, yeah. which is good. That kind of takes away it. the drama, yeah. yeah. So freshness, negative one, because their format, which part of the reason I probably watch it, but <laughs> their format is the same as pretty much anything mm-hmm. that you watch. Dateline, 48 Hours, any of those, there's so many of those shows, yes. type of shows now, and they're all very similar. Stock. They all have a narrator. They all show the, you know, collage of photographs, reenactments. Although Dateline and 48 Hours don't really do reenactments that much, do no, they, they don't. anymore? No, they don't. I think Unsolved Mysteries is the one, which I was yeah, watching I the other night. But I, I took away yeah. half a point because I figure it is what it is, a middle budget True Crime Doc, and the one fresh thing about it is it's focusing on this one specific people who disappeared, and it doesn't tell the obvious stories, like it told that one of the women who had drinking problems and drug problems and was kind of a surfer, and, you know, so it does have a variety of stories that or like that old couple that got married. Yes, and, that, I just watched that last night. That but was I, that was another one where I felt that I wanted a little more. Information. I wanted more yeah. information on the family missing on pieces the family. on the family dynamics. Yeah. And it's hard when you're relying on the family to tell the story to also trash the family. Yeah. So I'm taking like half a point because it does not just tell the same obvious. I think the first season. There were a lot more, like there's Madeline Marie O'Hare. There were a lot more ones we're familiar with. Yeah. But as it went on, I mean, there are a lot of missing people in this country. There really One are. thing I got tired of hearing is, oh, they told me it's not against the law to go missing. That's a, and it's not. But what that's another missing piece where what they should throw the stat in every show that 
you know, a hundred whatever thousand people are reported missing, and the large majority of them are missing of their own volition yeah. or whatever, adults. Well, and in my experience, the two people that I knew, people who I actually knew that were missing, had ended up committing suicide. Yeah, which some and of these people are, reported them that? missing. I'm not gonna. They're not. Yeah. It's people I knew online. It wasn't oh, okay, people I knew. Okay. Like I knew them. I had met them like briefly, right. but I knew them more online. But both of them, their family reported them missing and all this stuff, and the, and they're both right. they were found dead. And that happens so often. I mean, people go off and kill themselves. Right. And, but usually, when someone does that, you find a body. Yeah. Well, I guess so. And, and one of the interesting things in this you're one, you're not going to hide yourself. And, and I'll say to the freshness point, and it's why I'm only taking away half a point for that, is there are a lot of really interesting ones, like the young man who was obsessed with treasure. Oh, in the mountains, and they yeah. didn't reveal that, right? You learned that. Yeah. You know, it, it, there's a huge variety of people okay. who disappear. I'm not trying to convince you. You can do what you I'm want. I'm still taking who, off the point. Who disappear for different reasons, and it's interesting. So, and it's not always what you think. Repetition, I took off a point. I'm taking off half. Because it's similar to other ones. It just shows the same photographs over and over again. A lot of times they repeat. Stuff that you already, they already told you. Right. Um, a part of it that I don't like, and this might be, could be in any story you're telling freshness or repetition, is I don't need a narrator telling me something that the cop is going to tell me. Yes. Or, or the cop telling me something and then the narrator just telling me almost word for word what right. the cop just said. And so I'm taking a point off of that. I, I agree. I'm taking off half a point. Because, and maybe this isn't a good argument, but we've seen so much worse <laughs> on other shows. And then beating the drum, I didn't take anything off. I didn't. They don't really beat the drum no, too much. Like they credit. could, like the whole thing, it's not against the law to go missing. They could beat the drum. Why are these cops looking harder stuff? But they give the cops a chance, even the one, one of the ones I watched last night where the cops just totally dropped the ball and lost the files and everything. Yeah. And, that might have been the season seven one. I can't remember. And then the new cop kind of had to start from scratch. They still have. So they could beat the drum, and they don't. So my final score was four. Mine is five. <laughs> but and yet, I'm, I'm still going to keep watching. I'm still going to keep watching. I can't stop. And one thing I, I keep, yeah, it's one, one thing I have to say you... that it's not boring. No, I and like it. I like just... stalked. I couldn't take any oh. more of. I oh, see, watched I like thirty. Watched it. But one one reason I'm I'm watching it and it's interesting to me is it has some of the themes that are in the book. Oh, in your new book, <laughs> writing. But it's funny, like, I was trying to figure out how, usually with my books, I have some ideas and stuff, and it takes me a while to figure out. To plagiarize enough authors to make the book. (laughs) And this one kind of is almost fully formed in my head, not on paper, obviously. I have an outline, pretty much. I don't know all the details of how things are going to happen, but which is unusual for me. And I really think it's because... I've been totally immersed for the past two years and watching nothing but true crime. That's good. Are you going to put that in your acknowledgments? <laughs> no, because it, it'll make it shows. sound like a crappy book. Most people don't even read the acknowledgments. That's true. Anyway. Well, thank you. I want to thank all our Patreon supporters. That's right. And our newsletter will be coming out at the end of the month. We're going to add some features, photos, and stuff. It's and you can find us on... 
CrimeAndStuffOnline.com. Yeah, that's the best way to And we're also on Twitter and Facebook. Yes. We're trying to tweet more. And if you can give us a review, please do. I was just listening to old episodes from two years ago from um, True Crime Obsessed. Patrick Hines is one of the hosts, and he keeps saying that they have a goal of 200 um, reviews, and which they far surpassed now, but that was his goal. So I have a goal of 100. Okay. I'd like us to reach that, please. Reviews help. Yeah, Reviews even help. if you want to say bad things. Oh, I'll be nice. I think there's the point. I can't imagine anyone who's been listening for this long <laughs> to this episode. Why do that to yourself? Yeah, I know, really. I know they don't make it easy to leave a review because I try to leave reviews for podcasts I like. Yeah. Something about it, every time I do it, I'm like, shit, what am I supposed to be doing? And then I kind of figure it yeah. out, but it is a pain in the ass. So anyone that does Especially leave a review, on your review phone, I thank you. Yes, and I usually do on my phone. And we'll be back in a couple weeks. Yes. So thanks for listening. Bye. Uh, you're not on. <laughs> right, you're not on the list. They do so my fuck off. Well, bitch. It's a whole other thing. Anyway, should I pee first? Well, the recording is on. So you have to decide. Do you have to pee? Do you want to pee now, or should <laughs> yeah. we start? Okay. Two. You sound just like a mother.